Am I up? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it right. Good morning. Happy Easter because he is risen. We've been singing about that and it's a fantastic truth. It is the truth on which we anchor our hope for eternal life and not only eternal life, but this life to come. So we're glad to have you this morning as we celebrate this morning. I think it is fitting for us to read the resurrection story from one of the Gospels. So I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. And we're going to uh, read Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 28. If you have a copy of God's Word, if you have uh, a phone, if you have um, a scroll, if you have a, um, a codex, whatever you have, we invite you to turn there. And we believe that the reading of God's Word is very important, that this is the moment that God indeed speaks to us. What I say about it all morning is, it's important, yes, but it is not the Word of God. So this is, and to give attention to the reading of his word, would you please stand with me as we read together Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, story of the resurrection of Christ, the word of God. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Father, we are grateful for this day um, where around the world Christians are celebrating, singing many of the same songs, reading the same texts, declaring the same truth for millennia that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead Lord, it makes a difference in our lives. We pray that we would know that difference this morning and help us to understand uh, your word in its complexity, but also in its simplicity, but the power of the resurrection and all that it does for us and for your glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, we're glad you're here as we celebrate uh, the resurrection, but we also celebrate spring in a sense. It doesn't look like it, I know, when you're walking in, you can kind of see the sun up there, but it is indeed spring. What do Easter and spring have in common? As it seems, they have a lot in common. I have to say this, first of all, I love winter, okay? I love the snow. Many of you know that. I talk about that. The more snow, the better. When, when we get a forecast for, you know, four to six inches in a storm and it only snows two inches, I'm severely disappointed. I'm depressed. 
Or if, uh, if there is no forecast and all of a sudden we get this big dump surprise that happens sometimes, I am elated. I even live, love sub-zero weather. I do. And many, you, you think I'm nuts, but I, I love it. I love the snow. I love to, to drive in it. I love to shovel it. I love to play in it. I love to watch it come down in the street lamps. I, I just love winter and the cold and the snow and even the dark days. I don't get depressed. I just like extreme weather. But I have to say, I'm ready for spring. Because I believe in the four seasons, <laughs> as I believe in the Holy Trinity. And I... I believe that God has set those seasons for us to enjoy them, and indeed he has. And so spring is a time of life and rebirth. It's a time when all things dormant come back to life, new beginnings, eggs and bunnies and chicks and flowers blooming and trees budding, all of those things. In the, in the western United States, it's, it's lambing season, it's calving season. Those of you who grew up in the, in the, out in the outer hinterlands know that. But it's about new life. Um, I like music. I was a music major. One of my favorite pieces, two favorite pieces that I'll tell you, Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copeland. Go listen to that this afternoon. It, it paints a picture of spring. Vivaldi's Four Seasons and the first three movements are all about spring. And you can see the flowers blooming and coming out of the ground and the crocus and the, the birds and the, the babbling brook and everything. You can see it. Therefore, it is fitting that Easter and spring go together. They are related. You know why? What does winter mean? Death. Winter means death. As beautiful as snow is, it is associated with death throughout literature and throughout time immemorial. Winter and snow are associated with death. The Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, when they first come into the land of Narnia, where it is always winter, but never what? Christmas. And why is it never, it's never Christmas, so therefore it's never spring. It's always under this frozen wasteland of death. Until Aslan, a picture of Christ, comes, and the thaw begins because the promise of spring has come. Spring means that death has given way to life, and Easter is the same. The death of Christ has given way to the, the life of Christ in the resurrection. Even the Hebrew calendar, you know what the first uh, month of the year is in, in the Old Testament Hebrew calendar? It is April, because it's a picture that the old year dies in winter, and the new year is reborn. And so God has built that into to, um, to the seasons and to remind us and, and the, the rhythm of the seasons of the cycle of life and death and death and life. And so it looks like this. Winter is spring, winter and spring, death and life, crucifixion and resurrection. That's what Easter and spring have in common. It's built into everything. God has built it into the fiber of his creation for us to understand the gospel. And the gospel is proclaimed even in the seasons. This is his design. And in this rhythm, every year, as the earth spins and as the earth goes around the sun and it comes down to this, this time of year, we tell the story again. Because we're back in the season. And retelling the story, there is always a winter-spring theme 
because that is the theme of Easter, death and life, winter, spring. In order to appreciate the spring, you have to go through the winter. In order to appreciate the resurrection, you must understand the death of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ doesn't just stand alone in the scriptures. There's not just this random verse that says, and then one day Jesus died from the dead, rose from the dead. It doesn't say that. The opening pages of Genesis begin and predict the resurrection of Christ from the very beginning and all the way to the end of Revelation. It is telling that central event of all of human history, the death and resurrection of Christ, that Christ might fulfill all things. So every year when we talk about Easter, yes, we talk about the joy of his resurrection, but that has to be against the backdrop of death. And how this world is broken. Um, and we tell it every year. One year we talk about a pandemic. And we talk about uh, 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 rioters burning down cities. And we talk about racial unrest. And the next year we talk about something else. And every year we talk about problem after problem after problem. And this year we have a lot to choose from, don't we? In our own community we have drug-induced mental illness that's causing all sorts of homelessness. Poor people enslaved there's this relentless sexualization of our children, our culture that is just, that is, it is horrible. There's inflation that you face and it's squeezing some of your families. And I know you have to listen to the experts. They tell us that the, um, you know, the price of gas is going down. But when you go to the pump and it's, it's 10 cents more than it was last time, you can't believe your eyes. You must trust in the experts. They told you it's going down, so it's going down. Do not believe your eyes. But every year we have, we have serious problems. And then there, of course, is the routine problems of school shootings. Most recently, Christian children targeted. Wars and rumors of wars. Oh, this is nothing new. This is always there. Natural disasters, tornadoes that have killed scores of people in the last few weeks in the South. Nothing changes. We have a new list that is old and we have an old list that is new. And the lesson is always the same. This world is broken. This world is badly broken. It truly is. We have to remind ourselves of the brokenness of the winter so that we can remind ourselves that God is not yet done. He hasn't forgotten. There is a fix, there is a solution, there is a resolution of all this. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the spring of our hope. That is what we lay hold of and and sing about and celebrate today on this Easter Sunday. So we're going to look at a number of things this morning that, that are true of us as believers because of the resurrection. We could list tons and tons and tons. But I've got four just very simply for you this morning. And the first is this, because of the resurrection, we have peace in turmoil. We can have peace in the midst of trials. We can have peace in the midst of tribulation. We have peace in turmoil. There's a verse that's been rattling around in my head the last few weeks because of all that we've gone through as a church and that the Snodgrass family has gone through in losing Henry. And it is Jesus' words in John 16:33, where he says this, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, 
But take courage. I have overcome the world. He desires peace for you. He wants you to have peace in the midst of this. The, the, the context of John 16:33 is Jesus with his disciples, and he told them that he is going to die. They are grieving. Their world is falling apart. And he gives them words. He gives them these words that, that we trust in his words that he says, I, I, I want you, the, the words, the things that I'm saying to you are meant to bring you peace in the midst of these, this turmoil that you're in. And then he just states the, 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 the current state of affairs. In the world you have tribulation. Just what it is. He calls it for what it is. It's not a prediction. It's a statement. It's an observation. It's, a, it's the current state of affairs. But then he gives an exhortation. Take courage. And then he gives a reason and a promise because I have overcome the world. And even though at this point he has not yet been arrested, he has not been betrayed, he has not been tried, he has not been mocked and scourged and nailed to a cross, he has not died and been buried in a tomb, he has not yet risen from the dead in victory over sin and death, but it's as good as done. For this happened before the foundation of the world and that's what God planned. His resurrection is as good as done at this point. And that's when he, what he means when he says, I have overcome the world. His death and his resurrection. Obviously a timely message for us as a church. Timely message for us in our culture. There's not a lot of peace. There's a lot of trouble. There's a lot of tribulation. There always is. We have a lot of Christians who are flagging, who are tripping, who are stumbling, who are not holding true. But Jesus gives these words, take courage. And he says it in the present tense, I have overcome the world. So we have two things I want to show you. We have peace with God, and we have peace from God. We have a peace with God, but then we also have a peace that comes from God, a kind of peace that he guards us with. First of all, we have this peace with God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, having trusted in Christ as your Savior, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. There's a song that we sing sometimes, and the line of it is, Once your enemy, seated at the table, Jesus, thank you. We were alienated from God. We were indeed enemies of his. Just like the crowd that crucified him. And we were separated from him, but he brought us near by Christ, by the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, and so we have peace with God. We have peace with him, and that's a good thing to know, that we are not alienated from him, that he is not our enemy, and we are not his enemy. But also, we have peace from God. In other words, we have a peace that comes from God. And you know, many of you know, this verse in Philippians 4, 7 through 8, that says, Be anxious for nothing. The world is full of anxiety, right? Don't be full of anxiety. Don't be full of depression. The world is full of people that are on meds. 
But he says, be anxious for nothing. Don't be depressed. Don't be concerned about all of these things. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He says, and replace that anxiety with a reliance upon him, talking to God, bringing those concerns toward him, thanking him that he's able to do something about it, because these are all things that you cannot change. For he is God and you are not. And the promise, the peace that comes from God, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, all comprehension, will guard your heart, your emotions, and your mind, what you think about, in Christ Jesus. But you have to do this. It doesn't just happen. You must Rely upon Him and go to Him in those moments of anxiety. And that very access to God and the privilege to talk to Him is only possible for us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because we're no longer enemies of His. We have peace with Him. Second of all, because of the resurrection, we have joy. We have joy in trials. We have joy in tribulation. We have joy in the midst of trouble. The words of Jesus, once again, he said, In the world you have tribulation. He, notice what he does not say. He does not say, In the world you will have. You will, yes, you will. But he said, You have it right now. You don't need to go looking for it. You don't need to wait for it. It is here now. It is the story of your life, isn't it? Tribulation, trials, toils, it is the story of our lives. The car breaks down, the baby gets sick, the baby doesn't come, the marriage ends, the job is lost, the opportunity is squashed. Over and over again, things come to us, trials and tribulations. But the theme of dealing with trials also begins in Genesis, the first few chapters, and goes all the way through Revelation in how do God's people deal with trials and the opportunity for joy. You can have anxiety in the midst of trials, or you can have peace, and you can have the joy that he provides. I want to read an extended portion of Scripture to you from 1 Peter chapter 1. In the first few verses say this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Um, that means you're a saint, you're a Christian. Um, there are not two kinds of Christians, Christians and born-again Christians. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. It just simply means that you are a believer in Christ. You were once dead, as Christ was. You were made alive, as Christ was. To a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. All this comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He goes on. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you Greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. For some of you, various trials is an understatement because there are a multitude of trials. 
but he is saying that the, those people that he's writing to, they greatly rejoice in the midst of various trials in this time in which we live. And he goes on to say this, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, your faith is tested by the trials. It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes back. The trials that we go through, our faith that is tested gives him the glory. And then he says this, And though you have not seen him, we have not seen him physically, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, and yes we do, you greatly rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory because we know that our Redeemer lives. That is the only reason. We greatly rejoice. How how can anyone rejoice in the midst of trials? How can anyone, how do you do that? When we lose a loved one, when we lose a job, when we lose a marriage, how do we rejoice? We do it because of the resurrection. And a simple lesson for you is this. There is no greater cause for joy than the hope of the resurrection. There is no greater cause of joy. There are lots of things that bring us joy in life. You get a new car. I know someone who got a new car. <laughs> it's a source of great joy. You get a new job. Maybe you get engaged. Or you fall in love. It's a source of, of, of joy. We have two grandchildren coming. A, a, a girl in July. A boy in July. Sorry, sorry. A boy in July and a girl in August. We just found out yesterday. And we're overjoyed by that. But there are people that don't get a baby. There are people that lose a baby. How can there be joy? Because of the resurrection and the resolution that Christ has overcome the sorrow and the death that we go through. There is no greater reason. There is no other reason. There is no greater hope that even in the midst of the worst of news, there is hope. A resolution, a conclusion that things will end properly in in music i don't know how many of you know a little bit about music theory but there's something called the picardy third or the tiers de picardy picardy third is and you don't need to know much about uh, music for me to describe it to you and you'll understand some songs are in a minor key and when when you listen to a song like a uh, barber's adagios for spring for strings it just it just somber and it so- sounds so sad and in the 16th century composers did not want to end on a sad note so what they did was they would write this entire piece on this minor key and it makes you mournful and you're just kind of contemplative and then, and then at the end it resolves in a major key the picardy third Some have called it the world's most hopeful chord because it ends properly. Winter is in a minor key, but it ends with a ray of sunshine. The world is like a sad symphony seeking resolution. And that resolution indeed comes through Christ and his resurrection and the sun shines. And we can look forward to that even though... The tune of our life may be in a minor key. 
For you, O believer, it will end on that major chord. Let me show you two verses that help us to understand this. Death and life, winter, spring. Two verses. Jesus wept and rejoiced always. Which one is shorter? We always say, well, the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the English Bible is Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Greek New Testament is rejoice always. But to juxtapose those against one another, Jesus wept at grief and pain of sin and death, and we rejoice always, always. Why? Because of that Picardy third. Because of the resolution that's coming, because of Christ's victory over sin and death once for all. And we can't just say to people, God loves you, so rejoice. What does that love mean? It means, it translates into a future and a hope that all things are finished and resolved because of the death and resurrection of Christ. And He will right every wrong Wipe away every tear and there will be an ultimate day of rejoicing. And what does the world offer to us? It's okay. Everything will be okay. Platitudes. Or the world offers a political party or a president or a movement or some kind of activism and in fact the the answer of the world is Laws. Let's pass a law. Let's make it uh, uh, against the law to kill people. What it already is. Okay, well, let's make it a law to hate people. Well, God's law already says that. Well, let's make it uh, a law that you can't say bad things about people. God's law already says that. I'll tell you something. Laws do not change people. They cannot change the hearts of people. And they will always be the same. We will be lawbreakers. There will always be lawbreakers, and the only hope is Christ. And the greatest question, what is, what is the answer of the world to the question of death? They have none. There is no answer. But we have that hope, and we can be joyful in the midst of any trial that comes our way. Third... Because of the resurrection, we have a confidence in a a world of uncertainty. We have this courage. We have this this ability to, to trust in the middle of the uncertainty of the times in which we live. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, it says this, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And what he's talking about in the previous couple of verses is, guess what? The resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we do not lose heart. And we look back at the resurrection and we don't need to give up. We don't need to lose heart. And then he goes on to say, but but even though our outer man is decaying, and, and for every one of us it is, yet our inner man, the part that's been born again, is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, 
but we look at the things that are unseen because all we see in this world, he says, is temporal. But the things that are unseen, these biblical spiritual truths that have held true for millennia, they are eternal. That's our hope. We have confidence in the midst of a world that is uncertain because the world is is fading away. We don't need to worry. We have a different perspective. And so here's a lesson for you. View life and view the world through the lens of Easter. View your world and your life through the the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's important to see the world that way. You can have the lens of winter, which is the lens of death. Or you can have the lens of spring, which is the lens of Easter. Do you remember the pandemic? A few of you remember that. Um, Do you remember Easter of 2020? Probably most of you, oh, wait a minute, what's going on? Uh, We did not meet at Easter. We streamed the service. And... A pall hung over everything, didn't it? It was a death about everything. Not just a death of people dying of, of COVID, but there was just a stench of darkness and death that hung over everything at that time. And I went back and I looked at the message that I preached to you that Sunday. And this is what I said to you, and it holds true today. I said, we cannot look at Easter through the lens of the pandemic. It's like the pair of spectacles, pandemic, and we, we look at Easter that way. We have to turn it around, right? We have to look at the pandemic through the lens of the resurrection, the lens of Easter. That is a biblical worldview through the lens of a God who exists, who has solved the pandemic and death that ensues. And everyone has a lens through which they view life. And I don't know what yours is. It may be materialism, meaning that you just want to get a lot of stuff. Or materialism, naturalism, that the world is all there is. Which leads to some people have a a view that there is no God. Which, of course, is atheism. Some people have a view of, of the world. It's all about self, making myself happy. Or pragmatism. Whatever works, I will get by. Or looking through the lens of the fact that I am my own God. But we view the world through the lens of the resurrection, everything. The lens of Easter, because in it we see darkness. And we see light in the darkness. And we see truth in error. And we see hope in despair. And we see joy in turmoil. We see that through the lens of the resurrection. Peace, joy, confidence in the uncertainty of a world that is passing away. And we have a, learned a proper perspective. One of the things that we've, we've learned with that perspective looking back is that uh, every human institution that we put our hope in failed us. People's trust in all of those institu- institutions has been severely shaken, to which I say, good. 
whether it's government or media or medicine or politics or academia or experts or whatever. And it doesn't mean that there are not good people in all those things, but the institutions themselves have shown themselves not to be trusted. They will all day one tip and totter and be shattered because they all have one thing in common. They are not God. God is on the throne. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Ephesians 1, Paul talks about raising Christ from the dead. And he prays, he prays that our hearts would understand this and, and be enlightened. And he says, Jesus has been raised far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Every president, every king, every parliament, every government, he's above them. Why? They're going away. And every name that is named, he said, whether the name is Biden or Bush or Obama or Trump or whatever, none of them are God. Only God is God. There is only one God. And that gives us the hope because the truth of the resurrection will remain long after America is gone and presidents and parliaments and congresses come and go. But our Lord will always remain. Instead, our hope should be stronger now, having gone through the pandemic, clarifying the nature of our hope and our trust. It is stronger. But it's all about Easter, isn't it? The resurrection, Christ's ultimate victory over sin, and everything that sin causes, even over death itself. Because of the resurrection, we can look forward through this temporary existence to something that will last forever in great hope and in great joy. Therefore, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart because we see things as they exist. Next, we, because of the resurrection, we have endurance. We have endurance with hope. We can endure and not give up. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to be there in, sometime soon in our study of 1 Corinthians. I cannot predict when. But this is that Paul devotes an entire chapter to the idea of the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ and our resurrection itself, that we are raised with him, and we will be changed in a moment, and we will be with him, and we will be raised as he was raised from the dead. And, and so he tells us, and he gives us treatise on the resurrection, and this is the bottom line. Therefore, since Christ rose from the dead, and you know it to be true, since you will one day, by virtue of your faith in Christ, be raised from the dead, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Just what does this mean? Don't give up. Keep on keeping on. Keep the faith. Stay the course. You have good reason to. Because of the resurrection, you don't have to give up. Do you ever feel like throwing in the towel? Yeah. We all do. 
like it's no use, eject. Just want out of this world. We, we talk about it. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Rescue us from these times in which we live. But don't give up while he has you on this earth because you know that Christ has conquered and will conquer. Can you imagine if you were capsized out in the middle of the ocean in a boat and you're lost at sea? Everyone, there's no flotsam and jetsam floating around, nothing to grab onto. You're treading water. Everyone else is dead. The ship has gone down. It's dark. And it looks hopeless. And you're treading water for hours. And you're, what do you begin to think to yourself? I'm just going to go under and take a big drink of water because there is no hope. But what if you knew that the Coast Guard was coming? Maybe you didn't know exactly when, but you knew they were coming. What would you do? You would endure. You would be steadfast. You would continue to tread water water with all of your might because of that idea of self-preservation for you, for your wife, your, your husband, your kids, your grandkids. You would do that. You would keep on enduring. And that's what we have. Because of the resurrection and all that is ahead, we can keep on treading water. But it's not just treading water in place. It's, it's enduring. And it's, you know, it's what he says. Your toil is in, not in vain because you are abounding in the work of God. It's not that there are no, there are no consequences to what you do. What you do matters to God. It matters for eternity. It will count for something. All your trials and toils, it is not meaningless, it is not pointless. Your life matters. Your struggles matter to God. They will not be in vain. They will have some kind of lasting consequence. But trust Him. Trust Him. So finally, in conclusion... Because of Christ's resurrection, we can live forever. All that we've spoken of so far um, presupposes a relationship with God, that you know Him, obviously. And Jesus said this that same night before He was betrayed. He said, this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? praying to the Father, and he says, that they, his disciples, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know Christ is to know God the Father, to know God the Father is to know Christ, and we know him by personal faith in him. Recognizing the world is broken, but so am I. What's the fix for the world? There is none. What's the fix for the brokenness of the world? Through Christ, it is the resurrection. Here is where it becomes personal for us. Yes, the world is broken, but we are broken people as well. And the final result of the resurrection is your life redeemed by faith in Christ. So what do Easter and spring have in common? Where we begin, the hope of winter is spring. The hope of spring is the resurrection. 
And the hope of the resurrection is eternal life. I became a Christian when I was in my early 20s, and I was not a good person. I did not do good things. I really was not. And because of the lifestyle that I led, I feared death. I really thought that I was going to die. I had enough church background and Sunday school stories to adopt a typical misconception that many people have, and it's, it's throughout all cultures. And that is that when I died, my bad works would be on this side of a scale, and my good works would be on this side of a scale. And if the bad outweighed, that I'm not sure what, which one I had, but anyway, if the bad outweighed the good, I was in trouble. And if the good outweighed the bad, I would be okay. And I didn't even understand what that would mean beyond dying. But it's a typical misunderstanding of people. And I knew that, that that misunderstanding was enough to condemn me because I knew that the bad outweighed the good. But what if it didn't? What if the good outweighed the bad? What if I was a good boy? What if I was a good man? A model son, brother, good friend to all, full of joy and hope, helping people, selfless, a model student, a model employee. What if the good outweighed the bad? Well, here's the thing. What is the counterbalance? I am not the standard. The standard is Christ. The one man who lived a perfect life and my life is weighed against his holiness and righteousness and perfection. And no matter how good, and you may say, well, you've been a pastor for decades. Surely you've done good things. Perhaps, yes. But as, as Isaiah says, our righteousness are as filthy rags compared to the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. My only hope is in him and so is yours. You know, we have all the problems of this world that we listed, and we could go on and on and on and on. But there are personal woes, and this is, again, where it becomes personal for us. Um, And maybe you're unmarried, and you want to be married, and you can't find a spouse. Maybe you're childless. Maybe your marriage is failing or has failed. Maybe you're estranged from your adult children, or you're estranged from your parents. Maybe your health is failing, you've gotten bad news, or someone in your family is dying of cancer or some other disease. Maybe you're in financial crisis, or you're just depressed and in despair. You might even be indifferent to all of these things, or you might be grieving, as some of you are. And this is where I cannot and will not sell you a bill of goods to say, well, you know what? Because of the resurrection, if you believe in Jesus, all those things are going to be fixed. Some people preach that this Sunday. If you believe in Jesus today, you're going to be healthy and you're going to be wealthy and you're going to have everything you need. God's going to solve all your problems. He will not end this life, but one day every tear will be wiped away. Every wrong will be righted. The message is not trust in Jesus and all these things will go away. The message is trust in Jesus. And he will help you through these times. I 
had a phone call the other day from a man who was in prison. I met him before during the pandemic, and um, he called me to kind of thank me because he was when I met him, I told him, "You need to do the right thing," and doing the right thing ended him up in prison. And he's guilty. And he will be there for a very, very long time. What hope does he have? Can I tell him, well, you're a Christian, so therefore go to the warden, go to your, uh, your attorney, go to the judge and say, hey, I repented of my sin. I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm ready to go home now. doesn't work that way. But he can be free. Even in jail, he can be free. Christ sets captives free. We're all in jail. We are. We are all incarcerated. But in Christ, we are free from the penalty of sin. In Christ, we are free from the power of sin. In Christ, we are free from the curse of death. And so when we place our faith in Christ because of the resurrection. He doesn't promise that everything is going to go away, but he does promise his presence. He does promise his power in the midst of all the things so that we can have peace, so that we can be joyful, so that we will not lose heart, and so that we will endure. And that is the hope of the resurrection. And I call you to a tangible expression of Easter morning, of all that we've talked about, the bread and the cup, the body and the blood. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we invite you to this table. This is a, a memorial meal. It's representative of the fact that This Savior, whom we love, really lived on this earth in a human body, and that's what the bread signifies. He lived on this earth. He went about doing good. He did miracles. He was the Son of God. He lived a perfect life. But he was rejected, and he was nailed to a cross, and he died, and that's what the cup represents, that he poured out his very life blood to pay for our sin, that we might be with him in the resurrection, that we might experience the joy. And so as we have uh, uh, communion this morning, I want us to do this with joy because this is a joyful day. He is alive. He is risen. He is risen from the dead. And so will we, and so we can have hope we can have peace we can have joy we don't need to lose heart we have endurance to continue on because he lives father in heaven i thank you for this bread and this cup it represents to us all that easter is all that the world is about the brokenness of the world But the answer through Jesus Christ, our Lord, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for loving us enough. And I pray that there might be some who partake of this right now, that this might be their first declaration of faith in you in turning from their sin in reliance upon Jesus Christ, a loving and gentle Savior. 
who was wooing them and calling them into a relationship. A relationship of peace and joy, confidence and endurance. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So we end with the Eucharist, the thanksgiving, because this is a day of thanksgiving and praise. And we say together, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift and God's people say, 